keep within. And when they say, look here or look, there is Christ, go not forth, for Christ is within you. This is the OIM Greek Bible Study, session 20, and we are on the Gospel according to Mark. We left off in chapter 10. I think we went down through 40. I'll begin there and just read that section from 41 to 45. When the 10, the 10 apostles heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So he mentions the Gentiles, and he mentions them, but he doesn't say what the Jews do as far as being slaves or servants. Who's in charge right now? The Romans are. The Romans are the government. <laughs> Palestine. Israel is just a province of the Roman Empire and had been for some roughly 80 years or so. I think the point there is that the Roman rulers are pretty tough rulers. I think that's the comment that's being referred to there as to you're not to be like them. I think this is again in response to what seemed like an arrogant kind of request from James and John that they have certain special privileges when Jesus gets his kingdom. And of course, they're still thinking here of a more social, political kind of kingdom to get rid of the Romans rather than understanding this kingdom of God as a spiritual thing. Okay, let's go on then. They came to Jericho. As he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Artemis, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. So, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. The first thing I wanted to say here is this name Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. That's what Bartimaeus means. That prefix, the B-A-R, is Aramaic, and it just means son of. It's like in Hebrew, any name that begins with B-E-N, Ben, means son of. Benjamin is son of Yamin. And then here, Bartimaeus is son of Timaeus. Or if you've seen the name of Barabbas, that would be son of Abbas, or father. And of course, have mercy on me, eleison, is be compassionate. And then here we have people trying to quiet him down, but he just won't be quiet. Again, he calls him. Hey, fellow countrymen, be compassionate. Have compassion on me. And they called the blind man, saying to him, and the Greek, take heart, is um, cheer up. Get up. He's calling you. And, of course, he calls him my teacher. Does anyone have something different than my teacher there? 
I have Rabbani. What verse is that? I just lost it again. 51? Um, yes. 51. Yeah, Rabuni. Again, that is Aramaic, and that basically means my teacher, because Ravi means teacher. The New American Standard has master, which is a little different. Okay, from if you speak British English, master means teacher. Uh-huh. You know, like headmaster? Yes. Head teacher? And that can be a bit confusing because we use master in a different sense than the United States. I don't know what uh, they do in Canada. Can David tell us? What does master mean? What's the first meaning or two of that word in Canadian English? And the first thing that comes to my mind is just somebody who really understands something is the master of something. So oh, a master of something. Uh-huh. More, that's more like a teacher who's, who's an expert or has some knowledge then. Okay. We had a headmaster in my elementary school in Vancouver. Ah, okay. That was the principal. Right, okay. The English word master comes from a Latin word, magister, which means teacher. Anyway, the Hebrew is teacher. And even today, I mean, when you talk about Jewish rabbis, that's their understanding, you know, that they're teachers in a synagogue. Oh, hi, Wes. I was just asking when you came on in Canadian English, what's your first thoughts when you hear the word master? I would say it's an archaic word. Like, it's not something I associate with modern English. And it can mean sort of like a, a slave situation, but it can also mean sort of a extreme expertise. Yeah. That's, that's what David was saying. Mike, who's, you know, rich, who's Canadian also, was talking about a headmaster, principal of his school in Vancouver. Hmm. You can see why Bartimaeus was sh shouting, because he couldn't see exactly where Jesus was, so he had to yell just to make sure that he could be heard. But the crowd didn't like him doing that, but he was persistent. And the next phrase here in verse 52, go your faith has made you well. That's very interesting because you have that same words in the story about the woman with the issue of blood that Jesus cured when she had touched the hem of his garment. And because she had this vaginal bleeding, that would have made Jesus unclean. But he cured her and he said the same words to her. In Greek, it's interesting that it's exactly the same words. It's kind of a tongue twister here. Which means your faith has saved you or your trust or your confidence in me has healed you. This is singular, of course. This word is faith or trust or confidence. Sesosen is an aorist past tense that means healed or saved, rescued you from your sickness. So... That's what's being said here on a physical level and then also on a spiritual level. Another interesting thing here, the gentleman tells Jesus that he wants to see again and immediately he regained his sight. And so what this is saying is that this man at one time had sight and he lost it. We don't know why. Maybe it was cataracts. Maybe it was torn detached retina, two of them. But the Greek indicates that he had regained his sight he could see again, and that's what he wanted, to be able to see again. Shall we go on? When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, 
Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say this, the Lord needs it and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I remember years ago when I first was reading this passage, this was very confusing to me what was going on. This donkey in this village and just going and taking it, what was that all about? It appears that arrangements probably had already been made with the owner of this animal in this village and that the owner knew about this as well as maybe some others in the village and there's probably the only donkey in this little village, wherever it was, so that it wasn't that suddenly Jesus went out and was taking somebody's donkey. <laughs> was the Greek donkey? Oh, <laughs> okay, what is the Greek word for donkey? Is that onos? Let me check. Okay, a colt is polos, P-O-L-O-S. So it's a horse, not a no. donkey? No. I think the whole point is that this is not a horse. Right, I thought it wasn't, but a colt is a... Originally, it meant a colt of a horse. But then it began to be used more widely to mean a young animal or a foal, an ass. Okay, foal of an ass. Yeah, so we're talking about a donkey here. Is there a significance that it was a young animal in the Hebrew mind? I think what's significant is that it's a donkey, not a horse. Because the only people that would have a horse would be the government, the Roman army, or perhaps wealthy people. Ordinary people did not ride horses. A donkey was a very humble kind of animal in comparison to a donkey, I mean, in comparison to a horse. The Roman soldiers, you may see them on horses, or you might see the emperor or someone on a horse possibly, but it was not something ordinary people would be riding. A donkey was a much more humble animal, you know, used on the farms, and a horse would be associated with the powerful government. Just like in the earlier verses here, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them and their great ones or tyrants over them. Those are the people that would have horses. So that's the significance here of using this word. The regular word for donkey is anos. Yeah, my footnote says that it's a messianic demonstration in fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah of a peasant king riding on a donkey. Yeah, I think if you're Jewish at this time, you'd, you think of humility, of humbleness, that this isn't one of these arrogant Roman lords, rulers coming through town. It's a very different type of ruler. Or, or even a powerful Jew. Yes. This footnote actually makes the contrast with a war chariot. Like I said, military horses. 
I think that's what would have been in the minds of any Jew when they saw horses. It just would be associated with the very powerful rulers. You know, there's some misunderstanding of, I think you've probably seen pictures, paintings of the Apostle Paul when he encountered Christ Jesus on the road to Damascus. You might see him there like having fallen off of a horse. But in the Greek, there's nothing there that says anything about a horse. And that just wouldn't have been the case. If we look at verses 9 and 10, in verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. That too is again looking towards a restoration of the political kingdom of Israel, not spiritual, if you take that in an outward sense. Just as I may have mentioned here in some earlier session, in Acts, it says in chapter 1, verse 6, this is at the ascension. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And he replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. Again, even at this late point, there was still some of his followers were still thinking of Jesus as being some form of a political or social leader. It wasn't until after Pentecost when they received the Holy Spirit in much greater degree that they understood what he was really about. Okay, let's go on. Verses 12 through 14. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. It's a strange passage. Why would Jesus curse this fig tree? I am trying to remember, and I can't find a reference as to what a fig tree may have meant at that time. I don't know if anyone has come across any commentary or reference to a fig tree. Well, we'll get back to that after we read the next section here, where Jesus cleanses the temple. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. I found a couple references in my version about the fig. Okay, I have some thoughts, but I go ahead and say what they found. Uh, one was, it says in my commentary, some suggest that the fig tree represented Israel. Yes. Which bore no fruit and would soon face the judgment of God. And then goes on to say that Passover comes in March or April, and fig season is not until May or June. However, fig trees generally produce a number of buds in March, leaves in April, and ripe fruit later on. Jesus was looking for the edible buds, the lack of which indicated that the tree would be fruitless that year. Uh-huh, right. I thought it was a reference to Israel. Fig trees start leafing here earlier in California. <laughs> it seems Probably. strange that you 
January, maybe February. It seems strange that he was expecting fruit out of season earlier than it could have been available. I think he was not. He knew that. But this may be a reference to saying something about prayer and that if you have complete confidence, then something will happen. Just like this confidence we have here with this blind man who wanted his sight restored, his confidence in Jesus, in the power of Jesus Christ, was what Jesus said was healing him so that he regained his sight. So I found a reference that says, in the Jewish scriptures, and I don't know which Jewish scriptures, the people of Israel are sometimes represented as figs on a fig tree. But I cannot believe that Jesus would say something bad about an entire people. Yeah, I don't think that's, that's, what's, that's not the sense here. It's more as what I was just saying, that I think it has to do with the power of persistent prayer and having 100% confidence in, in, in something, that if it is the will of God that such and such be done, then it will be done. Right. That's how I understand that. Okay, in this passage here about the cleansing of the temple, technically they should not have been there changing all the money exactly where they were. But from what I've learned in the past was that I think the chief priests got a cut of whatever was transpiring there. They were quite upset with Jesus overthrowing those tables, even though what they were doing may not have been technically appropriate wherever those benches were. Of course, you know, there are certain things that had to be done. You couldn't use the Roman Empire. It had to be exchanged for the appropriate Jewish money that would be given in the temple. Things like doves would be something a poor man might be able to purchase, some bigger animal, a lamb or whatever, for uh, someone who had more money. But there's another very interesting thing here about this passage. If you go to the Gospel of John, you have the same passage. It doesn't occur basically on his way to his death, but it begins, it's at the initiation of his ministry. 213. 213? 213. Ah, there it is. Yes, that's it. This is something that probably happened, but how it's being used and where it's placed in the narrative is a very interesting thing, where in John, it's at the beginning, and in Mark, it's at the end of his ministry. Why that is so is that the writer of the Gospel according to Mark and the writer of the Gospel according to John understood it differently and put it in different places because they wanted to make a certain point that perhaps with John it's put earlier to show the need to have a clean temple, a pure temple. If you remember what Paul says, that we are all temples of the Holy Spirit, that we have to be pure ourselves. This is something that is a primary goal of becoming a Christian. And, of course, the ministry of Jesus, in terms of how it's presented in John, you start off with this. Whereas in Mark, it looks more like this is maybe the final straw in terms of the chief priests and the scribes wanting to kill Jesus, to get him arrested and trumped up on some charges of sedition against the Roman oppressors, you know, rulers. If you recall, it, on top of the cross, the charge was king of the Jews. And of course, no one's king of the Jews except Caesar, the Roman Empire. That's the top leader. And so this is what Jesus was convicted of, of being a, a seditious person, a revolutionary, wanting to overthrow the Roman government. And that's why Jesus was crucified. 
and such people were and would be crucified. As you recall, in the slave revolts, the two, three major revolts of slaves in the Roman Empire, that was seen also as a revolutionary, a seditious kind of action to be in an uprising against the Roman government in terms of wanting to be free of their slavery. And of course, thousands then were crucified. One other comment I can make here too is that who else were crucified with Jesus at that time? Thieves. How many? Thieves. Yes, there were two, two thieves. Well, that word, let's go to it right now. That's a word that means thief or robber, but it has another meaning, which is the correct meaning, the meaning that you should have there, and that is an insurrectionist. Ordinarily, you wouldn't just go and crucify a thief, but if this person was someone like seen as in total opposition to the Roman government, well, they would be executed by those most horrible of horrible forms of execution. So when you read thief or robber there, I think that's not the right choice of words there. It much, makes much more sense because those two were also insurrectionists just as Jesus was convicted of insurrection. He wanted to place himself in place of Caesar. So is that what he's saying here when he says that the temple has been made a den of robbers? Is he saying insurrectionists there too? I don't follow what you're Oh, in verse 17, he says of Mark, he was teaching and saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Oh, okay. Let me see what that word is. Hold on. Well, that's a reference to the Old Testament. Uh, this is actually a quotation from, yes, it's the same word, robbers. But again, that is robbers. I mean, thieves. I'm sure that they were char perhaps charging a lot more than they should have for a dove or whatever they were selling. One thing that's funny is that it's stressed this was happening in the temple. I would have thought that Christ would have thought that changing money in order to make donations to the temple and selling doves for sacrifices to the temple would be bad even if they weren't being done inside of the temple. I'm not up on my variations. There were different sections of the temple. The non-Jews could only go to the outer section of the temple. The most inner section, only the chief priests and priests could go to. And there was a section where only the deepest would be at the chief priests once a year. Then, of course, there was a section for women, a section for men. We have found some stone in, I think it's in Greek, that warns Gentiles about going any further into the temple saying that on pain of death, if you dare to go any further into this temple, you would be killed. All right, let's go on to the last section here from verse 20. In the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you do not doubt in your heart, but believe what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. 
See, that's why earlier I was emphasizing that I think this section about cursing the fig tree and having it wither really has much more to do with the sense of how strong one's confidence is in God and how much trust one puts in God. If it's in alignment with God's will is, then it will be done. It's not that we are sort of making a demand of God to do this because we want this to be done. That's a kind of Santa Claus God that gives us what we want. But there is a sense here that, where even Paul mentions this, I think, more than once, you know, keep praying, don't stop. And you perhaps at some point will stop asking for things that you asked for before because perhaps your mind is closer to the will of God and you're not going to ask for things or not worry about things in the same way. In verse 25, that's very similar to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. There's a word there that isn't quite that clear in that English translation. Forgive us our trespasses just as much or in the same degree as we forgive those who trespass against us. The word there in the Greek in both is, you know, release us from our debts just as much as we release others from their debts to us. And this debt that's being talked about is we owe God something because we have sinned. And that's the kind of debt or trespass that's understood. But there is a conjunction here in both cases, just as much as, and to the same degree. So as much as you forgive your enemies or others, that's as much as you'll get forgiven. It's sort of the equivalency that's actually being expressed there that may not come out in the English, in that other English translation. What's the Greek word for a debt mean? Aphelemata. Oops, hold on a second. Where is that in Matthew? Is that Matthew 5, 6? 6. Matthew 6. Yeah, it is aphelemata. It's the plural. Let me just put that down. Oh, that's the singular would be aphelema. So the actual word in the Greek is debt. Forgive us our debts. But the understanding for a Jew at that time is we owe God something if we've committed a sin because of having committed that sin. We are in debt to God for doing something about but, it. But is that word, aphelamia, in Greek, does that mean a monetary something you owe? Or is it uh, more of a personal, both. social? I believe it's both. Clearly it is monetary. I know that. I'm just looking it up here. It's not one of my everyday Greek words. Yeah, it's both, as I was saying. That which is owed in a financial sense, a debt, one's due. And the second meaning is an obligation in a moral sense, a debt, i.e. sin. Okay, so it could be both. It is both. Okay. And actually, when the dictionary quotes the Lord's Prayer here, Matthew six twelve, in that second sense, an obligation in a moral sense, and it refers to an Aramaic word, which I can't read. But the other sense also is used in uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 4. Payment is an obligation. So both senses occur in the New Testament. Aphelema. I think we're probably at the end here. Any other comments, questions? I had a question about the Greek word for compassion. I think you said Kyrie eleison. Yes, that's the word. Actually, eleison, uh, what verse was that in here? It was in one of the first. With the blind man asking Jesus to be compassionate. Yeah. 
so I'm looking at the Greek, it's kind of, oh, there it is, eleison, it's in verse 48. I have a feeling that COVID-19 is going to cause eleison all over the world. Yeah. That's my hope, my prayer. Well, this is actually the imperative form, which, you know, means uh, be compassionate, be merciful. It has emphasis. Yeah, I mean, the form, this form I'm giving here, eleison, is the imperative mood of this verb. And it does mean be compassionate, be merciful. And that's where this prayer called the Kyrie eleison, Lord, be merciful. Uh. How does that go? Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Christ eleison, Christ be merciful. Yeah. Christ Christ be merciful. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. And um, we'll start again next week. Goodbye and good night. And okay. see you all. Good night. Good night. Good night. Keep within. And when they say, look here or look, there is Christ. Go not forth. For Christ is within you, and those who try to draw your minds away from the teaching inside you are opposed to Christ. For the measures within, and the light of God is within. And the pearl is within you, though hidden. This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearning Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The words to our music are from George Fox's 19th Epistle in 1652. The music was composed and sung by Paulette Meyer. Paulette's work can be found at paulettemeyer.com.